Uh, the scripture readings this morning are Luke 1, 1 through 4, and Luke 22, 24 through 27. Since many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, as one having a grasp of everything from the start, to write a well-ordered account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have a firm grasp of the words in which you have been instructed. And then Luke 22. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. The word of the Lord. Well, as we kick off our series uh, today for the fall, Pastor Bree and I are co-preaching today. So I'm going to say a few words, and then Bree's going to come up and say a few words. And for those of you, if you haven't had the opportunity to see or get this Bible yet and you would like to, it looks like this. They're available out there. It's a New Living Translation, and it's in a readable format. There's also online or um, audio versions available on f- for free, so you can listen to the daily readings Um, as we go along in this series. There's a well-known paradox that is, um, is, is important for the work of an artist. You know, artists, what they do is they seek to express themselves and what they see in the world, what they experience, using whatever medium they've chosen, whether it's painting or film or poetry or writing or music. And the artist's secret paradox is this. What is most private and personal in you is also what is most universally shared. So what is deepest in you is deepest in all people and in the world itself. So for the artist, the deeper you look into yourself, the more you find what is common to everyone else. The late psychologist Carl Rogers, he put it like this. He said, there have been times when in talking with students or staff or in my writing, I've expressed myself in ways so personal that I have felt I was expressing an attitude which it was probable no one else could understand because it was so uniquely my own. In these instances, I have found almost invariably that the very feeling which has seemed to me most private, most personal, and hence most incomprehensible by others has turned out to be an expression for which there is deep resonance in many other people. It's led me to believe that what is most personal and unique in each one of us is probably the very element which would, if it were shared or expressed, speak most deeply and widely to others. This has helped me to understand artists and poets as people who have dared to express the unique in themselves. The writer Luke is a kind of an artist, and he's painting a picture of Jesus. 
And we see an element of this paradox captured in the Gospel of Luke. It begins with him writing this book, this letter, to one particular person, Theophilus, an orderly account um, of, of what will take place for the whole world, for all who, like Theophilus, are hungry for God. There are a few things that are um, unique about the Gospel of Luke that I want to point out to you, mention to you this morning. For one, you'll notice if if you begin the reading tomorrow that there's an extensive um, birth narrative. And so the first couple of chapters, long chapters, preparing for the birth of Jesus and sort of this long, drawn-out introduction to the gospel. And then in chapter 9, all the way not through 11, but through chapter 19, is, uh, is the is extensive travel narrative where Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And everything that happens is along the way, and it's all meant to be seen in light of his journey to the cross. Another thing that's unique about Luke is that Luke's Jesus has an unrelenting concern for the marginalized and the dispossessed. And that's a profound thing in the gospel of Luke. You might know about the parables of Jesus. They're found in all four of the Gospels. But in Luke's Gospels, they are prominent and there's more of them. And so a couple of them are unique to Luke and they've become famous after thousands of years. Um, So the parable of the Good Samaritan, and we even have Good Samaritan laws, um, and the parable of the prodigal son. Those are two among others that are unique to Luke. And so let me share just a few things about what you're going to be reading in the coming week. Luke opens his words with a preface talking about how and and why he writes this book. He acknowledges, he says that, you know, there there are a lot of other people who have set out to, to write a good account of the life of Jesus. But what I've done, Luke says, is I've gone back further than those other accounts to the earliest eyewitnesses, the people who walked with Jesus, the people who were friends with Jesus, who knew Jesus. And I did my research with them so that I could provide an, an even more accurate account of the things that were fulfilled among us. And the word fulfill is really important for Luke because it means that Luke wants to say that Jesus is not just another guru. Um, Sometimes you might have heard C.S. Lewis say that if you've studied the life of Jesus, you can only draw one of three conclusions about who he was. He was either a liar, he's a total lunatic, or he's Lord of all. And Luke wants us to say that he's Lord of all. And this is the long continuation of, a, of the long covenant story that began not only, not just with Abraham, but actually with Adam, the, the father of all of humanity. And so we see some, some things that are unique to Luke. In Matthew's gospel, we see a genealogy because Matthew wants to show the readers that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And so he traces the genealogy all the way back to Abraham. But Luke wants us to see that he's not just the Jewish Messiah, but he is the savior of the whole world. And so the genealogy in Luke goes all the way back to Adam. 
In Matthew's gospel, um, there is the prophet who says, the virgin shall conceive and give birth, and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Luke, the angel says, you shall name him Jesus, and Jesus means God saves. And so the main theme in the gospel of Luke is the salvation that God is bringing in Jesus. And this salvation is all-encompassing. Um, it is for all of humanity, and it is a reversal of all of creation. And so one of the things that we see unique in the gospel of Luke are, are the social implications of Jesus' message, and we'll get to that in just a second. Wherever Jesus goes in Luke, there is salvation. Jesus brings salvation wherever he goes. It begins with Simeon in the temple holding up the baby and says, I have seen salvation. When Jesus enters into Zacchaeus' house, he says, salvation has come to this house. For Luke, salvation isn't something that, hap that happens after you die as like a fire insurance policy. Salvation is here and now. The future has broken into the present. When Jesus goes, returns to his, uh, at the beginning of his ministry, uh, from his hometown, he's in Nazareth, and he gives essentially his thesis for what his life and his ministry, what he's all about. As he stands up in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he reads the scroll of Isaiah, and he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. So like the other gospels, Jesus is the messianic king who brings the good news of God's kingdom. But this good news has implications for today, for the structures of society, for the poor, for the dispossessed, the marginalized. This kingdom is about correcting all that is broken in our world. And so he brings release to the captives. And this is a reference to Leviticus 25, which is known as the, the year of Jubilee, which the Jewish people were told to practice, not that they ever really did very well, but the year of Jubilee was the time when the slaves would be released and borrowed land would be returned and debts would be canceled um, and, uh, and people would be set free. And then Jesus says that this good news of release is specifically for the poor. And if you were in Sunday school a few minutes ago, you'll remember that uh, in Hebrew, the Hebrew concept of poor from the Hebrew word ani means more than material um, insecurity. Uh, the poor included all kinds of different groups of people. It referred to people with low social status in their culture, people with disabilities. The poor would also include women and children, the elderly in patriarchal society. It also included outsiders, social outcasts, people of other ethnic groups, those who have made a mess of their lives and don't find comfort in religious circles anymore. Um, and, and Jesus says that the kingdom is good news for these people. And then as the book unfolds, what happens is we see, we see this proclamation that he gives exampled and lived out in, in the stories of very personal, real people in real places in real time. 
And so he, we find him welcoming a corrupt tax collector and restoring him and bringing him salvation. We find him healing somebody who is paralyzed or seeing someone with a, a very contagious skin disease who is unclean, touching that person and healing him. We see him defending a prostitute in the face of, 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 of condemnation. Uh, we see him healing a bedridden sick woman. And these stories are so personal and so unique that they actually become universal, speaking to every one of us. As we read these stories, we find ourselves with the same needs that these people had. Wouldn't this mean the world to Theophilus? This, this Roman official who was rejected by Rome as being a sympathizer of the Jesus movement, rejected by the Jews as, or rejected by, by the Jews as being a Roman, wondering if he has a place, wondering if this Jesus who is now dead and who has apparently risen and talked to some people, was he a liar? Was he a lunatic? Luke is saying, no, he's Lord. And just as he has come for those people the, that sick woman, that man with leprosy, he's also clearly come for you too, Theophilus. And he's come for you too, Marty and Jonathan and Brian. And he's come for you too, Jesse. And he's come for you too, Henry and John and Mike and Bree and Devin. He's come for every one of us here at Mount Olympus Presbyterian Church. The God of the universe is so deeply personal in Jesus Christ. Pastor Chris and I have never uh, co-preached a sermon, so I'm excited to have the opportunity to close this up for us as we look through the book of Luke. Um, and as we've been reading through this and learning, part of the beauty of this gospel is this testimony that Jesus came not only as the long-awaited Messiah of the Jews, but as the one who brings salvation for all people, all people, including every single one of us. <laughs> and more than any other gospel account, Luke highlights Jesus's interactions with the poor, as Pastor Chris said, which is a much wider designation than we often give it today. But these were the ones who, by any of the social parameters of that day, didn't deserve Jesus's attention, right? But he shows us that God's love has no boundaries that he's willing to include the outsider, that he's not interested in glorifying the people who already have the highest social status, but that instead he not only welcomes and includes, he pursues and he touches and he builds relationships with everyone. He is here to upend and reverse our social structures that tell us how we are to earn our worthiness. And he makes us, shows us to be worthy and loved just by his attention and presence with us. And you would think that by the end of Jesus' ministry, his disciples who have been following him would know this better than anyone. They've not only watched him interact with the outsiders, they were the outsiders. 
right? They started as fishermen, tax collectors, zealots. They weren't exactly on the social or religious VIP list, right? But Luke tells us that right after they've made it to Jerusalem and they've celebrated the Last Supper together, um, after years of watching Jesus heal and teach and perform miracles for the poor, all the disciples started arguing amongst themselves about who was going to be the greatest in his kingdom. So they seem to have missed the point, (laughs) at least to some degree. But I wonder um, if maybe it was that experience of being the ones on the sidelines that grew in them over time this desire to be something more, to be considered great. Right? Maybe after all of those years of being looked down on or dismissed or in some of their cases even despised, that they were just ready to be recognized as favored friends of Jesus. But Jesus was not going to have that. <laughs> he says, in this world, the kings and great men lord it over their people, but among you it will be different. Those who are greatest among you should take the lowest rank. And the leader should be like a servant. See, by this point, they're convinced. They know that Jesus is the Savior, that he is this Messiah that they've waited for. But he still, after all these years, has to clarify for them what kind of Savior he is. I am among you as one who serves, not one who comes in demanding or grabbing at power and prestige but the one who takes bread in his hands and gives thanks and breaks it and gives it to whoever is in front of him who needs it. When we read Luke's account about all of these bickering disciples, I think it's easy for us to think that their argument sounds ridiculous or self-centered, like they should know better by now, right? Um, But I don't know that I can think of one person who doesn't covet that same thing in some way. who doesn't want to be recognized as being someone. I know I do. And whether we argue about it out loud like they did or not, it seems like a universal human desire to want to be seen and celebrated, to have someone say, you are in fact great. I think deeply, we all want that. And again, here's where we find this merging of the universal and the personal, right? Jesus knows that we have this shared desire to be seen and loved. He knows our deep need to be included, to be appreciated, to be welcomed, to belong. That's precisely why he serves in the way that he does. When he walked this earth, Jesus saw and celebrated each person individually, not from some lofty, disconnected throne where others would call him great, but on dusty streets and at wooden tables. And he reached out and touched calloused hands and dirty clothing. And he listened over and over to story after story that broke his heart, and he grieved with the people that were grieving. He was in it with them. He is the universal God, the savior of all people. Luke is making this clear, but he demonstrates his love for us in very tangible, personal ways, right? He's not above 
eating and talking with the people who are rich or who are called noble or the ones that like to think about all the rules and the law and follow all the right ideas and, and beliefs. He knows that they also have spiritual and relational needs of their own. But he spends most of his time or much of his time serving the ones at the bottom, the hungry and the poor and the outcast. And he asks his disciples to do the same. And how much does our world desperately need people who are going to see and serve like Jesus did? Um, I saw, uh, I watched a TED Talk this last Friday from David Brooks, and uh, there's just a a story that he shared that I wanted to share with you this morning. He was talking about um, a nonprofit organization that does work building empathy with kids by bringing um, mothers and their infant children into a classroom, and then all the children are supposed to share what they think that the baby is feeling, right? This is an exercise in empathy. And so there's a mother and a baby, and they're in this classroom, and all of a sudden there's um, a boy who's a little bit bigger than all the other kids. He's a little rougher looking. He was in the foster care system. He had been held back. He had some traumatic experiences in his childhood. Um, Things had not gone well for him, and he asked if he could hold this child. And the mom was a little bit nervous about this for a second, but she handed over her baby, and this boy was so gentle with this kid. And after a few minutes of holding this baby, he looked up at her and he said, if no one has ever loved you, do you think that you could still be a good father? And that just broke my heart. (laughs) It's right there is an example of someone who needs to be seen and who needs to be loved, right? And those people, those individuals are all around us. We, we interact with them every day. They have very personal needs. And I think that's why Jesus taught his disciples not to shoot for being the greatest, but to see and to serve. And so by the end of this gospel letter, Luke confirms to Theophilus that Jesus' mission was to come and to die and to reconcile all people to himself. Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, didn't matter. All people. And one of the ways that we're told to recognize and remember his love and his welcome for all of us is in the sharing of the bread and the wine at his table, like we will do together in a moment when we celebrate communion. Um, But as we continue on in the story of the New Testament and in Luke's story in Acts, as you continue to read this, I encourage you to look for ways that Jesus' universal good news shows up and touches people very personally and tangibly. And I want you to notice especially how it touches you very personally and tangibly. How is Jesus loving and serving you right now? How is he seeing the needs that you have and using other people or his time with you in prayer, whatever it is, how is he meeting those needs and how might he be calling you to see someone else and go and do likewise? Let's pray. Gracious God, we are so grateful 
that you didn't just come to sit on a throne, but that you came to walk with us on our dusty streets, in our living rooms, in our classrooms, in our relationships, that you are so near to us and you see us and you give us the eyes to see one another. Lord, I ask that 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 reality, that freedom, your salvation would be new to us this week and this day, that it would be something that we would meet and encounter with joy and with gratitude, and that we would remember that your love breaks through all the lies that we are told about how we are worthy in the eyes of society and accepts that we are your beloved, that in our baptism you call us and you claim us and that you have made us new and called us to be servants. Thank you for serving us so we would know how to serve others. In your name, amen.